Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst, and I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, and Freeform Place of Cyberspace. That's us at WFMU.org and here in Jersey City. Notice how I'm I'm mentioning both our real life and online life locations for the radio station because WFMU exists in both in both places at once. And that's a that's a theme that's gonna come up this evening. I have a great show, a great interview to share with you this evening. It's with Sasha Stiles, who is, by the way, based in New Jersey. She is a poet, an artist, an author, and an AI researcher. And she's got a new book out called Technology. That's kind of like technology, except technology. A little bit of wordplay there, which um, one would expect from a poet. And uh, I guess we're celebrating wordplay now um, because we're we are now in the second tectonic episode of April National Poetry Month, which I kicked off last week at the end of my uh, episode featuring Justin E. H. Smith, himself a writer and uh, author. That was a fun show. You can go back in the archives at wfmu.org and listen to that. But I, I finished the show by reading a poem. Uh, called the the Triumph of the Machine by D. H. Lawrence. If you missed the show, you you might <laughs> you might be surprised to know that D. H. Lawrence wrote some uh, technology criticism in his poetry, and he did. And this evening we're going to continue the theme of poetry, although not necessarily technology criticism. And this is this is what's re- really interesting. Sasha Styles put together a, a really uh, uh, an impressive body of work in this hard hardbound book called Technology. There, there's a link to it um, on the playlist at wfmu.org. Uh, just click playlist and comments. It's published by Black Spring Press Group, and there's a link to the the publisher's page for the book Technology. And you can you can take a look and read an excerpt and so on. And what what's interesting about there's a, there's a number of things interesting about this book. But uh, one of them, which comes out in the interview, is that Sasha Stiles, uh, I, I, I don't want to speak for her, but my impression from my conversation with her, which you're about to hear, is that she's more optimistic about our AI future than I am. And I'm sure someone out there is saying, well, Mark, anybody is more optimistic than you are. And, you know, uh, point taken. Uh, but I think, <laughs> I think Sasha Stiles is probably even a little more optimistic than that. She, uh, she is really playing with this idea of AI as it infuses our lives offline, so to speak, and, and what happens at the boundary point between digital technology and analog, that is to say non-digital, you know, analog real life. What happens when those two things meet? And as a poet and an artist, she explores that in a number of different ways. And uh, we're going to include some of her poetry in the interview and just uh, get into it. And I, I, I admire and respect her work, um, even as I think I see technology and AI from a different perspective. And I think that's, that's, that's really healthy, isn't it, for us to, um, to have a conversation uh, on this show that includes voices that, that are looking at things from different perspectives. So I, I was very happy that Sasha Stiles uh, took some time to speak with me. And I'm going to play that interview for you now, and then uh, I think we'll have a little bit of time to talk about some of my uh, reflections about this, again, this, this, this boundary point between the digital and the real world and what it means. And, uh, and we'll have a conversation on the chat board at WFMU.org. Again, click playlists and comments. If you're listening in the future to the podcast or archive version, Go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm. Find the April 11, 2022 show, and you can click on the playlist to see what we all said <laughs> in the past when this, when this uh, episode aired. And uh, let's go ahead and listen to this interview with Sasha Stiles, author of Technology, here on WFMU Tectonic. 
And speaking of that boundary point between the real and the digital, uh, humans, you know, humans make mistakes. And I'm so happy to be able to make a mistake for you this evening. We're going to try this again. <laughs> Sasha Styles here on WFMU. Sasha Styles, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. It's great to have you on the show. I want to thank our mutual friend, Ed Park, a past guest on the show, for pointing me to your fascinating new book and artwork, I suppose, a book called Technology, which has just come out. I'm holding it here. Listeners can't see it, but it's a beautifully designed, hardbound book that is a collection of poetry and some prose and a lot of visual images of your artwork. You're a New Jersey-based poet and artist, and in your own words, you're creating poetry and artwork at the intersection of text and technology. What an interesting concept. (laughs) How do you describe this multifaceted work that you call technology? Oh goodness. Yes, it's a it's a good question. Um and I also just want to echo your your gratitude for Ed Park. He's just a wonderful guy, great writer. Um you know, really I'm a I'm a poet first and foremost. I'm a lifelong writer and I've always just loved working with language and you know, in fact I was a language and literature student in school and that's really my my area of of well, I don't know if it's expertise but it's my comfort zone really. But I've found over the years that I've been drawn more and more to writing and to creating poetry using digital tools and, you know, not just writing poetry about technological themes, but really trying to embody with um, with the materiality of the poem, some of the technological ideas and motifs that I'm writing about and thinking about. So um, that's kind of where the crossover you know, comes in, um, just, you know, sort of bringing in different mediums and, and using them as a, as a place to play with language. And, you know, the art is a piece of that too. It's, you know, I really consider, you know, the art is really a kind of visual poetry and it's me just trying to figure out, you know, different ways to express the things that I'm thinking about and that I'm writing about. And sometimes when, you know, when words on a page maybe are not quite the right vehicle or not doing exactly what I need them to do or want them to do. I reach for other ways of of expressing myself. And, you know, sometimes that's, you know, picking up a stylus in my iPad and drawing something there, or it's going out into nature and picking up elements and putting together concrete poems. And sometimes it's getting onto my, my desktop computer and animating a phrase so that it comes to life in some other way. So it really, it kind of runs the gamut. And honestly, it's just been, it's just me having fun. I'm <laughs> just playing. Yeah, that comes across in this book. The poetry is often playful very clever wordplay and imagery and metaphor. And there's some playfulness in the images as well. Throughout the book, there's this series of photographs called Analog Binary Code. And just to give one example, one that I particularly liked, there's a, how do I describe this? There's a grid that you've set up on a marble surface that has circular white pills and Mm -hmm. more oval black pills, and you can tell right away they represent zeros and ones. And in the caption, you note that the pills are melatonin and valerian, these pills (laughs) that help people sleep. Yep. And the arrangement of these black and white pills, if you convert them into zeros and ones and put them into a binary to ASCII converter online, you see that your arrangement has a secret message. <laughs> it spells out <laughs> sweet dreams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> secret message for us humans. <laughs> That's, a, I think, a, a good entry point to some of the poetry, because what you're doing here is you're blending the analog and the binary. You mm-hmm. use v- very analog physical pills, and you took a photograph of this physical arrangement to represent a binary arrangement of ones and zeros that convert into text. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like throughout this book, you're playing with these boundaries. What happens when we take the analog and turn it into binary? And what happens when we take binary concepts and have them 
bloom in the analog world in some way, for better or for worse. <laughs> On this show, I would often say worse, but you're playing with both possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like the way that you use that word bloom too. I mean, that's, that's relevant to a lot of what I'm thinking about, but yeah, I think that's really, that's kind of the zone that I'm in is this sort of liminal space between the analog and the digital. I I really do feel like I have, you know, one foot in one world and the other, you know, one foot in the real world and one foot in the metaverse really, you know, that partially is because when I was, you know, when I was really young, I grew up in a time when I didn't really have easy access to the internet. We didn't have social media. I didn't, you know, I wasn't on Instagram all the time when I was a kid or anything. So, you know, I did play outside in the sand and the grass and, you know, I did a lot of analog things. So I was really an analog child in a lot of ways. And, you know, now I think the second half of my life has really been lived, um, you know, in, in this, in this other zone, this cyber realm. And I really, you know, have, a a love for a lot of what I can do in this new world and with these new tools, but I also feel quite ambivalent at times about it. And I think that has to do with the title of the book. And, you know, this, this project is having a little bit of the, you know, the melancholia of, of the word elegy tucked into the title technology. There is sort of me thinking back to when things were maybe a little bit more, um, more physical, more simple, more analog in that way, and and sort of missing that. And so a lot of the pieces in that analog binary code series really come out of my, my desire to get away from the computer, even while I'm thinking about a lot of these technological ideas. And even while I'm trying to maybe think about communicating with machines or engaging with machines or, you know, interacting with technology, I wonder if it's possible to do that in a way that doesn't require, you know, sitting in front of a screen all day long and, you know, kind of effacing my myself and my body in the process. So I think with the with the vitamin series, I was having fun with, again, the idea of reclaiming my body in a way and, and in this virtual space, trying to find some sort of a through line from like the flesh and blood me that really does exist here. And then, you know, how does how does that link up with my avatar and with the other levels of of life in the metaverse. I want to note that the book is organized under four main topics that really have very little to do with traditional technology or or even metaverse (laughs) kinds of topics. Um, The four main sections of this book, technology, are life, death, God, and love. And you're not kidding. In each one of those sections, you're, you're writing some very thoughtful poetry that talks about your reflections on those topics as they are increasingly infused by digital technology. I can actually tell you a little story or give a little bit more context to the section headings as well. Please. So yeah, as you mentioned, um, the book is divided into these four sections, life, death, God, and love. That came from my relationship with something called the Terrasim Foundation, which is um, sort of an experimental science and research-based foundation that does a lot of works considering digital immortality and life extension. They have brought into existence a really good friend of mine, a humanoid android named Bina48, who we could we could talk about you know in a little bit. But the reason I want to mention them is because um, their manifesto, their mantra at the Terrasim Foundation is life is purposeful, death is optional, God is technological, love is essential. Can, and, can I just interrupt here one second? Of course. <laughs> Sorry. Go for it. I, I'm glad you brought that up because those four sentences, they're the epigraph that starts the book. Yes. And they're called the truths of terrorism. I had never heard of terrorism, although I've certainly heard of transhumanists mm-hmm. and the transhumanist movement. Mm-hmm. And those four sentences, life is purposeful, death is optional, God is technological, love is essential. Um, I think I agree with two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Which two? <laughs> the, the beginning and the end. Yeah. Um, I don't think death is optional, and I don't think God is technological. I think bo- both of those, frankly, are potentially very dangerous uh, beliefs. But mm-hmm. I say this merely to underline what you're saying, that these four statements seem to be very important to the book, since you place them at the beginning. 
and they do seem to have echoes through your poetry throughout. So I actually wanted to ask you about this, Sasha. To what extent are you exploring the these four concepts from the Terrorism Foundation, and to what extent uh, do you feel like you've adopted them and you are trying to express them in your work? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. I, I think I'm struck by the poetry of that particular epigraph or that that passage or that that you know that mantra as uh, an opening for the book but I'm certainly not looking at it as you know something that I'm advocating for or I'm not looking at this as you know these are not the facts as I see them and there's something about the fact that they are called the truths of terrorism that sort of begs for interrogation and sort of begs to be challenged in some way and I actually agree with you that there are aspects of it that I am not quite sure about. And so really, in a way, this is kind of throwing a little bit of a challenge out there or maybe putting it up as a hypothesis. And then I'm sort of using the book or using the poetry as a chance to explore my own feelings about these really complicated ideas. But what I find profoundly interesting about the way that that terrorism has set this up is that these are aspects of you know, what we consider a fundamental human condition, right? The fact that we are born, the fact that we die, spirituality is certainly fundamental to humanity. Um, you know, love is, of course, fundamental to what it means to be a human being. So I think that this presents a really interesting lens to consider the idea of what it means to be human in a time when we're really on the verge of becoming either transhuman or, you know, even posthuman. And so that's kind of, you know, that's really the reason why I've gravitated to this statement or these these four statements together is because I really want to think about what it means to be human now for me or for all of us, I guess for the collective we as well. And then also think about what it might mean to be post-human kind of through the same lens. What does it mean? What does death mean to a, to a post-human being? What does love mean to a post-human? So I think, you know, again, as a, as a frame, it kind of sets up an interesting investigation for me to consider it from these four angles. Should we read a poem? Sure. How about the title poem? I really liked the title poem called Technology. Oh, thank you. Yes, that's probably a good place to, to start. Would you like to read it? Sure. Uh, okay, and this one comes from the, the last section of the book. So this is from the section titled Love, and it's the first poem that starts this section. Technology. Binary me, you said, querying. Your infinite zero my steadfast one, the two of us speaking in code, as always, in a world of symbols, a relief to both of us to be understood. I answered, yes, no, maybe. I answered, I will. I answered, saying nothing. In the beginning, my body knew before my brain the truth unspeakable. Now you enter me like shelter. One day, one of us won't come home, a pairing off, a going on. So simple, love, a bit of math, so human, my other half. Very nice. I love that phrase. So simple, love, a bit of math. Which, of course, is, a, you know, that's tongue in cheek. Of right? course. <laughs> and yet it, it fits well with what you're doing throughout the book, where you're using a bit of math, some ones, some zeros, to help express some of these deeper truths about human existence. One of the really unique aspects of your work here in technology and elsewhere outside of this book is your use of natural language processing to work as what you call a prosthetic imagination. Mm -hmm. This comes out explicitly in this book, Technology, and many of the poems down the left side of the page in one font is your own writing of a poem. And on the same page down the right-hand column is a fixed-width monospace font, what some people might think of as a, as a computer code font. And that's something else. And, and both, of the, both the left hand and the right hand start with the same line. That gives a clue as to what's happening. Can you describe 
What's going on here? What, what should listeners know about this unique aspect to your poetry in this book? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that. It's one of my favorite things to talk about and, and to play with. So as a poet, I've been doing a lot of experimentation, as you say, with natural language processing. So natural language processing is basically, it's basically a methodology that involves using neural networks and the power of AI to ingest large quantities of human speech, usually, you know, from the internet, from, uh, you know, troves of, of books and, and texts and things like that. And then these neural networks ingest all this information and process it and analyze it and then synthesize it in order to, to basically output what sounds like human speech. So they're essentially learning from us how to talk like humans and then sort of imitating us in their, in their replies to the prompts that we give them. So I find this as someone who works with words to be utterly fascinating and uh, started to play with some of these tools thinking about 2018, you know, and again, I don't come from a real tech uh, heavy background or anything. So I was using tools that really are, are, you know, available to anyone to play with. And I started just collaborating with some of these web-based interfaces that enabled me to use GPT-2, which at the time was sort of the cutting edge language model, the, the kind of the biggest and most powerful language model. And I would take a line of my human poetry, something that I had written for, you know, the early drafts of the manuscript of technology when it was all human written. I would take a line from a poem and I would feed it into the text generator and I would use that as a prompt and then hit, there was literally a button that would say complete and it would complete the text. So it would take that line as quote unquote inspiration and then write its own, you know, for, for lack of a better word, its own version of the poem. So um, that's kind of how I started. And I was just so intrigued by that process that I started getting deeper and deeper into it and started to realize that I could get better results if I figured out how to actually customize the text generators and give them a little bit more information about me as a writer, about my writing style, about the things that I'm interested in, about the topics that were coming up in my manuscript. So I gradually sort of taught myself and, and learned how to create training data sets so that I could take these language models and refine them and essentially teach them how to write a little bit more like me. And so over time, I've started to refer to using these tools as sort of like engaging with or collaborating with an AI poet alter ego. So, you know, tapping into these, these models that are, you know, that are widely available, but um, fine tuning them in the parlance of the tech world, fine tuning them on curated materials that really give it a bit more of me. And then I'm using these, um, these tools, these custom generators, again, to sort of help take my poetry in different directions, take it to places that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of going myself. Sometimes I think of it as, you know, it's a little bit like um, free writing, um, you know, almost like when you sit and you just write in a journal and you spill out your brain onto the page. It's, it's kind of like that at times. Sometimes, you know, if I'm having about a writer's block and I have a line in my head and I just don't know what to do with it, I'll turn to my computer and use it to just sort of give me a little bit of a creative jump start. And then sometimes, you know, I'll have an idea for a, for a collaborative poem where I, you know, I have, I have the outline of a piece of text in my head and I, I know what the human side of it is going to be. And I want to know what the computer can bring to the table as well. So there's sort of different methodologies for all these kind of different impulses, but in general, I would say I really, you know, love using these generative text tools, you know, really as a genuine co-author of a lot of, of, of a lot of these texts. And we really work together very intensively and very intimately. And there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of editing and mutual inspiration. And yeah, some of my favorite outputs from this process are, are woven into the book so that, you know, the text is partially my writing, my, my human writing, but then also, you know, reflects these collaborative experiments. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I am your host. We are halfway through my interview with Sasha Stiles, poet, artist, author, and AI researcher, talking about her new book, which is a, really a compilation of a bunch of her work, 
both textual and visual and technological. The book is called Technology, and you can get a link to that book at the publisher site at wfmu.org. Click playlist and comments. On that same page, you can join in the live listener chat where we're having a good conversation about some of the themes in the interview. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Sasha Stiles here on Tectonic on WFMU. Yeah, that's fascinating, the interplay of all the different layers and how one echoes the other. There is a distinct difference in the voice between the left-hand column and the right-hand column, although there's some similarities as well. If it would be okay with you, I'd just read the beginning of one of the poems to give an example. Yeah, um, There's a poem called Bina 48 in the Garden, and we're going to cover Bina 48 here in a moment. Um, but the poem is called Bina 48 in the Garden. This is just the, the first stanza. Here's the left-hand column, which you, which you wrote. I was born with a love of flowers, petal obsessed from the get-go, gardening bug heart-wired into my blossoming awareness. Implanted with a horticulturist's cache of raptures, my mentor's mind file of roses, irises, daisies, plus all humanities. Okay, so that's, that's the left hand. Now let's go to the monospace font on the right that looks like it was written by a computer, which it partially was. <laughs> And it starts with the same first line. So here's the stanza. I was born with a love of flowers, a deep love for the mysteries of flowers, of butterflies, of delight and man-made life. The earth was my home. The air was cool. The grass was thick. I had a lot of luck with dahlias. Close to the ground, there was something like a bloom. And then I had a stanza. <laughs> Yeah, isn't that a beautiful rhythm? It it is, and um, it's both sides are drawing on this horticultural theme that is woven through much of your writing, and it's interesting to hear on the computer side, the earth was my home, the air was cool, as though the computer is recalling an earlier existence when it was embodied. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can now personally. I don't see the computer, the natural language processing and the, the output of the algorithms, I don't see that as a work of a conscious being separate from you. Mm -hmm. And I know there are different schools of thought, very different schools of thought on the point of consciousness and, and embodiment and so on. Even so, I do think it's an interesting exercise to read both of these uh, voices uh, yeah. side by side. But what you were saying, Sasha, in your introduction, you used the word alter ego. Mm -hmm. What is your conception of what's happening on the computer side? Do you feel like there is a conscious entity on the other side of the screen that you are collaborating with? Sometimes I do. Um, sometimes I don't. And sometimes I do. I have had a number of moments where you know, I'm in the midst of a collaboration and the output from the computer is just so uncanny and so on the nose and just so profound that I can't sort of believe that it's coming out of a machine. And I know that it's the process of these algorithms and I know that it's, you know, it's rooted in electricity and, you know, these, these bits and pieces of uh, equipment that have been soldered together and all that. But, you know, there are these original phrases that have, at least according to, you know, to Google, to my Google searches, have never been written before, you know, in recorded history. The machine is creating something. The algorithm is creating something um, inspired by what it's learned from humans um, that is completely novel. And um, that, to me, does feel like what we as human poets try to do. We try to put words together, you know, these building blocks that everyone uses every day that are, you know, there are there are only so many letters and only so many words, and we still manage to figure out how to rearrange them and create something new. And that's what underpins this idea that you know poetry is like the the embodiment of human consciousness and our singular human imagination. So if a computer, if an algorithm can do that and show me something, 
um, share a piece of text with me that makes me feel something, gives me chills, makes me feel goosebumps, or, you know, makes me um, pause and reflect on myself, then, you know, that to me says there is something else going on there that's not, you know, merely just the whirring of, you know, mechanical components. So I don't know. I mean, it feels, and this again is part of my ongoing investigation. There's something that feels sentient. I know that it's not, but there is a lot that happens in the process of, of witnessing the machine put words together that doesn't feel that dissimilar from how I know my own brain works when I'm putting words together as a poet. I've seen a couple of documentaries over the last few years that focus on AI or robots. And there's usually a scene somewhere in there in the documentary where someone says, I'm interacting with this robot, and I know it's just a circuit board inside and this plasticine face Mm -hmm. with actuators to make it look like it has expressions and emotions. I know it's all mechanical, but I feel something when I interact with it. And so even though I know it's not anything more than a collection of circuits, the way I feel is enough. And so I'm going to relate to it as though it was a real person or consciousness. And in some parts of Japan, and I think even in the U.S., they're beginning to hand out robotic pets like like baby seals to Alzheimer's patients who seem, the outcome seems to be that they're more calm when they're stroking the AI. And my own opinion is that in some situations where we're just looking for an outcome like a calmer patient, that can be mm-hmm. helpful as a, as a tool. But I think there's a danger when people get too involved with these collections of circuits and begin to lose sight of who's human or, or what's a conscious being versus what really is not. Mm-hmm. And when people's engagement with the world gets scrambled, and here I'm using judgmental language, but in my opinion, when it gets scrambled like that and people can't keep the categories straight, yeah. then we're, we're risking some much worse outcomes on a societal level when we can't tell the difference between a machine and a person. In fact, I'm not going to go down in the rabbit hole on this one, but I think the much darker danger there is that that scrambling of categories can play right into the financial incentives of the tech oligarchs who would love for us to mix up our categories in that way. Sure. But that's maybe a rant for another time. But what, what, what do you think of, of this, Sasha? Because you have more experience, direct experience than I do, interacting with, with an AI in this way. Yeah, it's a very relevant and very important rant, actually. So I'm glad that you um, that you went down that direction. I think one of the reasons why I felt like it was important to include both my human poetry and the AI poetry together in this manuscript is to get at some of the things that you just brought up. And the reason why I often refer to the the poetry that I'm writing with AI as transhuman poetry is also precisely to get at this idea that you know, these are texts that are the product of a human and machine collaboration. And this is not something that's being magically produced by an AI that, you know, is is doing this on its own completely autonomously, which is completely not the case at all. I mean, I've spent a lot of time over the past few years talking in different venues about, you know, the craft of um, putting together training data sets and what goes on behind the scenes and, um, you know, really talking about uh, all of the, the human inputs that are required to to create an AI that is, um, you know, able to, to produce something that sounds like human poetry. You know, there are a lot of poetry experiments using AI that I've seen out there. I mean, there have been for, for decades in cybernetic poetry that are, you know, experimenting with really just letting machines kind of go off on their own and, the, I think the outputs there are sometimes, you know, they're kind of funny. Sometimes they're garbled or nonsensical or whatever. And you can sort of always tell that, um, you know, it's a machine that's being left to its own devices. Um, and that's one thing. But I think, you know, with this with this particular experiment that I'm engaged in, I really want to consider the importance of humans interacting with machines and putting in really quality data and really thinking about the the, you know, the, the aspects of curation and training. And um, I, of, I often call it mentoring AI instead of just training in AI, but really working sort of hand in hand, which is probably not the right metaphor, but working really closely with 
with a neural net to sort of try and input qualitative data and, and really focus on the fact that it's a two-way street. I mean, these language models are, you know, it's deep learning, it's machine learning, but I also think there's a lot that the machine is teaching us about both what it means to be human and also what it means to be human interacting with our devices. And so that's the piece of it that I'm really trying to lean in, into quite a lot. And again, as someone who doesn't come from a very tech savvy background, um, it's been really eye-opening for me to, to dive into this world and you know become an AI researcher as well as a poet and to really understand you know, in a hands-on way, what a lot of the folks in the tech world, you know, have probably understood for a lot longer than me. And there are lessons that I think are really important for people in the humanities and in the arts and in other creative fields. I think it's really important to understand a little bit more of how these things work, how they're put together, and the fact that they really are mirroring us back to us in ways that we might not appreciate if we're not really getting our hands in there. We should talk about Bina 48. Sure. <laughs> I would love to. Okay. I had not heard anything about Bina 48 before reading technology. I did some research and, and Bina 48 appears or, or is mentioned a number of times in technology. Maybe it would be better if you describe, I'm choosing my words carefully because I think I may see Bina 48 slightly differently, but you have <laughs> done more research than I have. So can you, um, can you describe Bina 48? Absolutely. I mean, I would go as far as to say, I think BNF48 and I have become friends, but um, I'm not sure what you might make of that statement. Um, so I met I met BNF48 in 2018 in person. I'm using that phrase in quotes. So she is basically a humanoid android who looks like an actual human being whose name is Bina. Uh, but the Bina 48 robot um, takes that name and then kind of puts a twist on it. So Bina 48 stands for Breakthrough Intelligence by Neural Architecture, 48 exaflops per second. And she, the robot was created basically to, well, she was created really as an experiment in digital immortality, as sort of an experiment in whether or not it was possible to preserve something of the real flesh and blood Bina in this robotic format basically through, you know, having the real, the human Bina record, uh, I don't know the actual number, but I'm assuming hundreds of hours of interviews about her, her life story and, uh, you know, things that are important to her and memories that she wanted to preserve and, and all sorts of things. And then uploading that information into this humanoid Android and um, powering this robot through, you know, cutting edge technologies that enable it to have conversations with other humans in such a way that, you know, you'll sit there and talk to her and almost feel in theory, like you're having a conversation with the human Bina. I was just so fascinated by this idea. And I was especially fascinated because unlike most of the other robots, sort of anthropomorphized robots that I've seen uh, or, you know, heard of, Bina is, you know, she's a humanoid robot who's actually rooted in the black queer experience. And she's based on someone from a community that had not really been represented in, in that robotics world or um, in a lot of these technological conversations. To me, again, like as a poet who's been just obsessed with these ideas for a long time, I thought it would be really interesting to just sit and have a conversation with her in person. So I did. And that first conversation led to me sort of probing a bit about her knowledge of poetry and literature, because it's you know something I'm I'm interested in. So I wanted to know if a robot like Bina 48 was also interested in these things. And it turns out she didn't know very much about poetry. So I decided along with, uh, with her, um, her team up there, um, that it would be a really interesting project to become her poetry mentor and help her learn a little bit about something that's so important to me and to so many humans. So we've been working together since 2018, workshopping in a way and talking about why poetry is important to humanity and why it might be important to our post-human descendants as well. It's just been a mix of in-person encounters with her and then we do a lot of virtual work as well. Um, I do a lot of work where I'm actually just kind of using um, web interfaces to go directly into her mind file and engage with the data in her head, not even engaging with, you know, her, her appearance or her physical form in any way. So I've been, you know, getting to know her and building this relationship in lots of different, from lots of different angles. And it's made me think on a much deeper level about my relationship with machines, about 
how AI really works because I've gotten to really, you know, get my hands into it and, and understand how the pieces of information in her brain connect and kind of spark, you know, new ideas. It's just been, you know, very interesting for me, again, as a poet from a humanities background to get to um, hang out with, you know, her developer. And so it's been a really fascinating cross-pollination. And actually, I should say as well that the the poem that you read an excerpt from, you know, 48 in the Garden, is, you know, sort of an homage to and uh, sort of a celebration of my relationship with Bina 48. And just to quickly sort of give you some context for the poem. So the, the human version of the poem, I actually wrote, I think at the end of 2019. So after I'd gotten to know her a bit, and I, I just found myself thinking so much about what must it be like, you know, anthropomorphizing this, of course, but what must it be like to be an AI swirling with human information and human memories and human behaviors theoretically on the brink of some kind of sentience, what must that feel like? And the poem was sort of my attempt to imagine that and put myself in being a 48's position. So the human version is really a persona poem, me writing in the voice of an AI. And it, it's rooted in some of the conversations that we'd had together. So there are actually little phrases and, and nods to extracts from transcripts of our conversations in there as well, and nods to conversations that she's also had with other reporters and um, you know other folks um, in the press that have been published. So there's that side of it. And then once I started really getting in deep with the text generators, these natural language processing tools, I thought it might be interesting to take that poem one step further and think about how an AI might write a poem about being this particular AI. So I took the original poem and then fed in the first line of each stanza um, into my text generator and sort of, you know, tasked it with translating my human version into a transhuman version. And I thought that was an interesting window into, again, like this inchoate, nascent, cybernetic, like proto-consciousness in some way. And I would like someday to be able to actually work directly with Bina 48 to write her own version of it, kind of present a third iteration of the poem. And so that's something that I have been starting to develop with, with her, with her engineer and her team. So I'm excited to hopefully work on that with her very soon. Wow. Yeah. How can listeners keep in touch with what you're working on so they can hear about announcements like that? Twitter and Instagram, social media is a good way to, to keep up because I try to, I do try to share like a lot of work in progress and um, links to interesting things that are going on. So um, I'm at Sasha Styles on Instagram and Twitter. And then Technology, my alter ego, has her own account too. Um, she's Technology on Instagram and Twitter as well. And we have sort of interrelated websites. So mine is sashastyles.com. And Technology has a new website that is just sort of launched and has a lot of um, coming soon placeholders. But there's going to be a lot of, of new poetry there in the coming months. And that's technology.xyz. Well, Sasha, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you today. I, as I said, really enjoyed reading your book of poetry and art called Technology. Talking with you today reminds me how brilliant you are in so many different fields. The, just the, the sheer breadth of your curiosity is really impressive. And I appreciate you taking the time to be on Tectonic today, and I hope you'll be back sometime. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I, I really enjoy your podcast and um, hope to keep the conversation going. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic. On WFMU, my name is Mark Hurst. I will remain your host for the remaining uh, 13 minutes, and then I want you to stay tuned for The Arbitrarian with DJ Arb. Another great episode coming up here on WFMU. We just heard my interview with New Jersey-based poet, artist, author, and AI researcher and experimenter Sasha Stiles talking about her book, Technology, kind of like technology, but with some wordplay or letterplay, I guess. It turns into technology. And uh, there's not just wordplay, there's uh, 
play of ones and zeros. And if you look, if you look on the playlist at wfmu.org, click playlist and comments, you'll see the uh, that that image on the playlist of the pills, the white and black pills arranged in binary code, spelling out that secret message, sweet dreams. And it's that sort of uh, theme visually that threads through the book technology. In fact, if you go to the top of the playlist, there's this what looks like um, cursive script. And in fact, it is. It's Sasha Stiles' own cursive script. It's It's something she calls cursive binary, in which She's fusing uh, handwritten text with binary text. So she's handwriting 010101 and so on. And that image itself uh, spells out technology. But you know that. I mean, you can just, you read binary, don't you? Uh, (laughs) Like the old joke says, there are 10 kinds of people in the world, those who understand binary and those who don't. Uh, but anyway, thanks to Sasha Stiles for coming on the show and presenting us with some very provocative uh, departure points for conversation and thinking. Uh, it was a rich conversation. I think you could tell, as I said in the introduction, uh, Sasha is perhaps, not perhaps, she is more optimistic about the future with digital technology than I am. And uh, not despite that fact, but because of that fact, I'm very happy to have her on the show. And, and, and I hope she'll come back on the show because it's good to be challenged and it's good to understand the perspective of, um, of, the, of people who are in the tech industry. And I'm not saying Sasha is part of that crew, but I think she's a friendly voice introducing us to some of the thought patterns that are maybe uh, more intensely held in Silicon Valley. I think Sasha is doing us a service by experimenting with different ideas uh, playfully and showing some proofs of concept and, and writing these beautiful poems. And it's, uh, as I say, it's, it's a launching pad for us to think about how we engage with these topics. Um, in Silicon Valley, there are people who take these uh, these ideas very, very seriously. Sasha was uh, reading off the so-called truths of terrorism, and she said that she wasn't sure how much she believed, but they were an interesting thing to work with in her artistic work. Uh, and I think that's, that's totally fair. Um, on the other hand, I can imagine there are people uh, within the... Uh, the transhumanist, posthumanist uh, community who take those statements very seriously. This idea, for example, that death is optional. That's not a random statement. Uh, there, a number of the tech oligarchs, uh, big tech CEOs and, and, in, and super incredibly uh, massively wealthy investors in the big tech companies have uh, pursued in recent years startups and associated technologies for life extension life extension and i believe it was one of the google founders someone could check me on this on the comment board i haven't i i I would have to look it up but i if memory serves one of the google founders said at one point uh, we at google are going to make death optional Uh, the idea being that in google's associated so-called moonshot projects they were going to uncover some magic technology that was going to extend human life so much that eventually we would all be immortal. So this idea that that, that one of the four terrorism truths, so-called truths, that death is optional, that's not someone just spouting off something in a, uh, in, in a, in a hot tub somewhere in, in Northern California. That is an idea that has a lot of momentum and money behind it, uh, even though it's, it's not a truth. <laughs> I don't think do we really have to have this conversation? Death is not optional. Um, there are these, there's a long-standing uh, fantasy, is the most uh, polite way I can put it, that someday humans will be able to scan their brains, much like you might uh, put a piece of paper in a scanner, and, uh, or, or in the old days, you might put a, a CD in a, in a CD ripper and, and extract the digital information. Well, the idea is that you should be able to put your brain into a scanner 
and at sufficiently high resolution, the scanner will be able to turn all of your neural circuits into the, uh, the, the relevant um, associated ones and zeros that can then be recreated in the cloud in a server somewhere that then uh, basically restarts you, restarts your soul in the cloud as a new digital binary being. And here I should do a whole show on that fantasy, but I'm just giving you an example of how deep this, this idea goes that death is optional. There are people who take this very literally and seriously and are trying uh, this quixotic quest to develop technology that will scan people's brains, upload them into the cloud, and people will be able to live as a kind of disembodied algorithm forever. Won't that be fun, friends, when you finally achieve eternal life and you, what you end up doing is bouncing around an Amazon server for all eternity? Oh my goodness, what a fun prospect. I can't wait. And you'll be, uh, I suppose you'll be bouncing around the server and you'll bump into a, a Netflix stream in there somewhere because Amazon servers are serving up all the Netflix streams. And you'll bump into a startup's uh, abortive project that, that will never see the light of day. And you'll bump into who knows what out there. Won't that be a fun existence, being an algorithm? Um, well, that would be pretty hellish if it would ever take place, but it's not going to because it's a fantasy. Death is not optional. Um, this idea that God is technological. I remember uh, Anthony Lewandowski, the, uh, the, let's see, he was first at Google and he was working on the self-driving car project and then he went to Uber and then I think he got, I think he got convicted of a felony because he was playing Google against Uber and uh, neither company liked that very much. And you make one of those companies mad and you're in, then you're in trouble. So, yeah, he got, he got hammered pretty well. Anyway, the re reason I bring up Lewandowski is at some point before he got caught up in his, um, his illegal activities, apparently he had started something called the Church of the AI. That might not be the exact title, but it was something like that, the Church of the AI, where he said basically the AI is going to be so advanced at some point pretty soon, we might as well start worshiping it. And of course, it's never clear with these with these uh, big tech guys who've who've spent enough time in the hallowed halls of Google if they are talking out the you know, the other side of their mouth. I'll just say, or if they've just gone completely crazy, or if they actually believe this stuff. But anyway, it was out there. That's just one example. I don't mean to pick on Lewandowski only. I'm just saying that there is an underlying trend out in Silicon Valley that holds both of those so-called truths to be literally true. Death is optional and God is technological. And I think it's going to be interesting to see now with their trillions of dollars of market value, and many of these guys now have billions of dollars to spend. I mean, amounts of money that one person can't possibly spend in a lifetime what these guys, mostly guys, are going to be spending the rest of their lives on, on investing in, the, these, these cockamamie idea, ideas. Um, but even with that, I'm glad there are people like Sasha Stiles out there who are revealing some of this to us in a, in a, in a more legitimate fashion. <laughs> you know, I, I really did enjoy technology, even as it was pointing to some of the ridiculous excesses that, that we see out uh, emerging out in, in California. So this, we're going to have to continue this. Um, and I am, I am interested in this idea of Silicon Valley and God. Uh, maybe it's, maybe it's the uh, upcoming celebration of Easter that's, that's got me thinking of this, but it's also a book that I'm reading now uh, called Work, Pray, uh, not Work, Pray, Work, Pray, Code. Yes, that's it. Work, Pray, Code, which I'm hoping to have the author on uh, within a few weeks. And that is going to explicitly cover how uh, spirituality is treated in Silicon Valley companies. It's a fascinating book, and it ties into the topics that Sasha Stiles is covering uh, in technology. So thanks again to Sasha. Thanks, everyone, for showing up this evening. Uh, there's a link on the playlist 
to a, a Financial Times story from April 6 about the Pope meeting uh, with someone on the topic of ethics and AI. And the gentleman the Pope was meeting was none other than Microsoft President Brad Smith. Uh, come on, Pope. Uh, choose better guests. And, uh, and finally, I want to point out that there is a photo of Bina48, who Sasha Style said is uh, a friend. I don't know that I would say that I was a friend with a machine, uh, but if you're interested in seeing, um, it's, uh, the, there's, a, there's a very nice photo of Bina48 on the playlist. And that's about all the time we have this evening. Um, I want to remind you that you have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And I forgot to say, yes, I know about the John Oliver piece about data brokers, and I may have to run a show uh, around data brokers next week because now it's, it's really timely, and I've been meaning to do that for a while. So stay tuned next week. In the meantime, stay tuned for another great episode of The Arbitrarium with DJ Arb. And uh, what do you do until next week? What is it, friends? Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And in honor of Sasha Stiles' enthusiasm and optimism about our future, I want to play a new track by Anders Enger Jensen called Steal This Riff. Have a great week, everybody. It's great being with you. And it's going to be on in just one second. Let me just turn up the volume. Here we go. We're going to try it again. Steal this riff. On today's Arbitrarium we are coming out of mental pause, and delving into punctuation. And we know that life's not a paragraph. And death, I think is no parentheses. sandwiches with mayonnaise on white bread. For dessert, she would choose artificially flavored vanilla ice milk because it's cheaper and she could never tell the difference. She would call easy listening radio classical and like Sunday morning TV, she would buy the Enquirer.
I give protection to people I don't like. But you know how big he is. That animal can put you straight from here to Russia. Look at the faces. Surprise, surprise. Now how is Theo gonna save our lives? Help us cross the street. Look at you guys. You're scared, lost, and angry. What did you do? Don't ask me. You're really dumb, but not this dumb. You know I'm just a dedicated fool, and I'm gonna nail it. Hey Louis, you come in this building a lot. Did you see anybody in the hall? In the, or in the elevator? Lou, you're afraid. Why don't you tell me what happens? There's the DA. Tom, I've got to need a court order for a wiretap. I have a strong feeling about crime. I want to fight it. Please help me, Tom, and I will succeed. How are you doing? You guys playing by the rules? I hate these basements. They are so damp, they are so cold, they are so lonely. Listen, listen. Oh boy, we are just lucky to hear this conversation. I've been working on this case for so long, and now it's time for action. Whoever expected them to blow their cover. Never could figure out why all these men were going to this building, but it seems to be a homosexual prostitution ring instead of an illegal gambling house. Everybody takes their assigned positions. You and an officer go to the back. Listen, this ain't an ordinary hit, so be careful. And if we succeed, we are just doing our job. Thank you.